You know, sometimes when you're in worship or you're in just uh, a situation where families together or maybe in a scene of nature where you see a beautiful sunrise or sunset or something like that, and you just kind of feel that, that longing, that craving, that desire uh, for harmony and peace. The Germans have a name for that. You probably knew this, but it's Zinzut. All right? Everything sounds like that in German, <laughs> Zinzut. And it's that, it's that longing, desire, yearning, craving, but for something that you also kind of know cannot be satisfied. In, in a sense, it is a, it is a looking for what the Hebrews would call shalom, that harmony, wholeness, completeness, prosperity, welfare, tranquility that kind of all comes together in what we call peace, peace. And, and one reason why we feel that is because while we are children of heaven, we live in a fallen world. And there's this just deep sense that things are broken, things are not right, they are not the way they ought to be, and we are homesick. We're homesick for a heaven we've never actually been to. So part of, the, part of the job of the church is to fix some of what was broken in Eden, to do what we can to, in a sense, restore at least some semblance of that zusik, that, that peace, that harmony, that shalom. And one reason for church discipline is to intervene in the lives of wayward members who are causing problems and who are breaking that shalom within the church. Well, that's what we're going to have today as we look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 6 through 15. There were people in the church of Thessalonica who would not work, and they were causing trouble within the church, and they were sponging off of the generosity of others. They were using and abusing other people. And my hope as we look at this passage that we will have a firm understanding of God's purpose of work, his doctrine, and that you will have more of a peace about your particular calling and that you would be wise towards those who are in a similar sin that the Thessalonians were dealing with. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we do come to you and pray, God, that you would help us to understand work. Regrettably, that is a four-letter word in so many people. And one reason why is they don't understand that Work is a blessing. Work is a gift. But we do understand it's also very difficult. It can be very hard. And all of us come with baggage of difficult, hard work experiences. So help us to have your mind as we understand the mind of the apostle through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit about what we are to know about this principle of work. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Please do turn to 2 Thessalonians 3, 6 through 15, and I'm going to read the passages in its entirety. 2 Thessalonians 3, uh, beginning with verse 6, God says, the apostle Paul writes, Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from every brother who leads an unruly life and not according to the tradition which you receive from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example, because we did not act in an undisciplined manner among you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. 
But with labor and hardship, we kept working night and day so that we would not be a burden to any of you. Not because we do not have the right to do this, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you so that you would follow our example. For even when we were with you, we used to give you this order. If anyone is not willing to work, then he is not to eat either. For we hear that some among you are leading an undisciplined life, doing no work at all, but acting like busybodies. Now such persons we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ to work in a quiet fashion and eat their own bread. But as for you, brethren, do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of that person and do not associate with him so that he will be put to shame, yet do not regard him as an enemy. You'll find your home group help insert of uh, benefit here as we go through this somewhat lengthy passage. Uh, but uh, you can first of all see that we're going to address the problem of work in verse 6, Paul's example of work in verses 7 through 9, the principle of work in verses 10 through 13, and then the penance necessary for those who do not work in verse 6b and 14 through 15. First of all, there's a problem here that we look at the, the problem of work. He says here, now command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is a very strong command from, from Paul. He is saying, we command you. So there's no question about whether or not this is Christian law in a sense. And then he brings the Lord Jesus Christ's name into it. Okay, we command you by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So this ought to get our attention. He is very, very serious about what he's doing. These certain people are leading an unruly life. Now, he's, he, the reason why Paul is uh, almost demanding in an emotional way in this particular passage is because he was with the Thessalonians. He has already addressed this issue in his first letter to the Thessalonians, and people are still in disobedience. They're still leading an unruly life. If his more positive approach earlier, and this, you know how it is with parents. You know, you, you try to encourage people, your children, in a positive way, and if that doesn't work, well, then there are repercussions here. There will be punishment here as a result of your, your rebellion. You live in an unruly way. So in a positive way, in 1 Thessalonians 4, he said this, Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, to attend to your own business and work with your hands, just as we commanded you, so that you will behave properly towards the outsiders and not be in any need. That's a very positive way to approach work, right? Well, now he's getting more negative because people have disobeyed that. Disobeyed that. And he mentions Jesus as Lord. And this is, again, we, we don't have a slave culture, praise God. So we kind of lose some of the meaning of that word Lord. But basically, in much of the Roman world, you had a considerable number of, uh, of slaves. Some places, as much as a third of the population were slaves. Well, all those slaves had masters. So there was a Lord-slave relationship. So God in, uh, is pointing out through his Holy Scripture, through the Apostle Paul, that your master demands this of you as his servant. Well, that ought to get our attention, too. While we may have an employer, we have a supervisor, we have a boss, ultimately we are working for Christ Jesus, our Lord. He softens the command a little bit because he uses for the seventh time in this letter the affection term brethren. So he is talking to Christians here. These are probably genuine Christians that are members of the church in Thessalonica who are disobeying. 
Uh, so that's something to keep in mind, too. You know, I don't know if you knew that or not, but every now and then, Christians will disobey. And, uh, he, and, and, but now we have a number of them, and they've dug their feet in. He says, he, he says here, remember this, so he's been trying to remind them this, and they're evidently uh, defending parties continue. And, uh, and, he, and uh, he's concerned about these people who lead an unruly life. That Greek word, uh, atikasos, uh, it, it actually literally means out of line. See, when we hear unruly, we sort of think of uh, college students at Daytona Beach at spring break, right? That's unruly. And he's like, well, I mean, you know, if that's an issue in the church, we got bigger issues than involved there. But it really, it's kind of one of these words that doesn't translate well. Uh, Gordon Fee says you ought to consider them as the disruptive idol, the disruptive idol. And that might be one of those little marks you make in your book because he's talking about the principle of work and not work and that kind of thing. So basically they're out of line in that they should be working but they're basically working, in a sense, in the, in the wrong ways. They're, it's not a picture of someone who's just sitting around, but someone who is actually a busybody, who is, who is working, causing trouble for other people. So they're walking in a way that's not pleasing to the Lord. So to, to, to address this particular issue, we need to get kind of a theology of work here. So we need to go all the way back to creation. To, to understand, first of all, the principle that work is a good thing. That might be hard to convince some of y'all. But, but, but down in your heart, you know it's true. You know it's true. There are rewards with work. It gives us a purpose in many ways. And one of the things we'll see is that everyone has a particular calling. God orders the planet by putting different skills, desires, callings into our hearts. But go all the way back to Genesis chapter 1. In the creation of count. And I'll pick up with verse 27. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. That's a good text for June. God blessed them and God said to them, Be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the surface of the earth, and every tree which is yielding seed shall be food for you. And to every beast of the earth, and every tree of the sky, and to everything that moves on the earth, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God said that, uh, saw that he, what he had made, and behold, and this is the point, it was all very good. And there was evening, and there was morning the sixth day. So, the fall has not occurred yet. God created work before the fall. What does work sound like? How about this? Be fruitful, fill the earth, subdue it, and rule over it. Those are, those are action verbs. There's some effort involved with every single one of those. They weren't just supposed to sit around. They were to conquer planet earth. And then he describes these plants and they're yielding seed. Well, now, in truth, you can eat seed, right? I mean, corn kernels are seed. You know, we can eat seed. But, he's, but, but there seems to be something bigger than that. We're going to produce seed, which you can go out and plant because we've got lots of cheering coming. You've got to have food for the cheering. So they're going to go out and get all this seed and they're going to start planting all this thing. And what does God say? My plan for planet Earth, for Adam and Eve to go out and subdue, rule, plant seed and everything it is good. It is good. Work is not a curse. You keep going in Genesis. Here where your, here's where your problem comes. 
Genesis chapter 3. Because of the fall of man, work became difficult and often futile. Genesis chapter 3, 17. And to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife, you have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground. Notice Adam's not cursed. But the ground is cursed. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil, you will eat it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles, it shall grow for you. And you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, you will eat bread. Till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken, for you were dust, and to dust you shall return. So, work is good. You got That is established. Work is difficult. I don't have to demonstrate that to you, right? I don't have to prove that to you. But that doesn't change that it's ultimately good and its purpose is ultimately good because God said it was very good. So you have to adjust yourself to the futility and the difficulty of it by recognizing that it's still part of God's calling for every single one of you. So uh, we see this from Psalm 104. The he causes the grass to grow for the cattle, vegetation for the labor of man, so that he may bring forth food from it. So you've got this cursed ground, and you're going to constantly have to work it. I mean, it's an agrarian image, but it happens for every one of these. I mean, think about the futility of so much of what we do, and it can be very frustrating. By the sweat of your face, you are to eat bread. Now, that is a command. That is a command. So you have a situation here where the unruly people within the church in Thessalonica were disrupting shalom because they were refusing to recognize the good of work. They were consumed with the futility of work, and they decided to let somebody else work for them. I wish that was novel in our culture. It is not. And he goes on, now, not according to the tradition you received from me. You know, he has been talking about the traditions in terms of doctrine. Now he's talking about tradition in terms of obedience, that they are to walk according to these traditions. Uh, and then, and what does he say here? You're to keep away from these people. They have repeatedly ignored the biblical commands, as we're going to see even the example of the Apostle Paul. So you're now to, in a sense, we'll talk about this in a second too, shun them. So... How is it that this came out? What's the, commentators are kind of torn about exactly what was going on. Why is it that some people just decided not to work? And we have several theories. First of all, they would call it a feverish eschatological expectation. And you're probably thinking, that sounds like a feverish eschatological expectation. The reason eschatology, the return of Christ, the view of the last things, because Paul has really emphasized when does Christ come back. And there was confusion. Someone had evidently forged a letter from the Apostle Paul. There was confusion that, that Christ may have already come back or he's coming back any minute. And Paul has to set him straight. It's not gonna, he's not going to come back until the apostasy comes first, until the rise of Antichrist and that kind of thing. And we think, well, that's just weird. So people stop working because Jesus Christ, uh, uh, you know, is, they think Jesus Christ is going to come back. Who would ever do that? The Seventh-day Adventist. That's how Adventism got started. Everybody, they, there was a predicted time when Jesus was going to come back. Uh, the Millerites sold everything that they had, and they were just waiting for Christ to come back. And he didn't come back. So it's not that unusual. But then other people wonder if that's really what it is. So there could be a disdain for work itself. They look down on manual labor. Aristotle, for instance, declared the working, uh, working as a craftsman or, uh, or a trader to be devoid of nobility, hostile to perfection of character. 
In a similar vein, Cicero, the Roman author, said, the toil of the hired worker is to be paid only for his toil and not for artistic skill. It's unworthy of a free man, and it's sordid in character. Trade on a small retail scale is also sordid. They were snobs back then. Now, here's a deal in our country as well, right? You've got this white-collar perspective where everybody needs to have a professional job, and we are all suffering because of this arrogance towards manual labor, towards good work, towards particular callings. I did the math. The woman who cuts my Westie's hair makes twice what I make, and she's worth every penny, every penny. That dog hates a bath. And she bathes them, she cuts them, and she makes a lot of money. I respect her for what she does. We should all respect. You wouldn't eat if it wasn't for manual labor. So we can understand this whole Greek culture, this idea that, you know, there's certain occupations that are, that are higher than other occupations. Then there was another idea. It was an entitlement mentality. Can you imagine such a thing? An entitlement mentality where you expect and demanded rich people to provide for the poor. How about that? There were... They were upset at people's privileges and they expected to be paid because they were not privileged then you had this idea in the culture a patron client relationship where the rich people felt obligated to take care of the poor and then here's the fifth one just plain laziness just plain laziness they were just lazy and they'd gotten into a situation where they're all equal, they're all brothers and sisters in Christ, and certain people decided to take advantage of that in an inappropriate way. This kind of thing happens, and let me tell you, it happens here even if you're actually employed. Let me read to you some performance appraisals uh, summaries that I got off the Internet, therefore they're accurate. Here's one. Since my last report, this employee has reached rock bottom and shows signs of starting to dig. Here's another one. This men would, his men would follow him anywhere, but only out of morbid curiosity. <laughs> you know? you, these people have worked for you, haven't they? Here's another one. I would not allow this employee to breed. Here's another one. He would be out of depth in the parking lot puddle. Another one, this young woman has delusions of adequacy. This employee go, should go far, the sooner the better. The last one, he sets low personal standards and then consistently fails to achieve them. <laughs> now, if you've ever been a supervisor, which I have, I, I am sympathetic to this, not current you know, company accepted. Uh, I, have you ever had this? I had an employee one time that, that I, could ne I could never figure out what he did other than schmooze. And he was a former athlete, and he would go, and everybody loved him. He managed all the sports teams for the factory and that kind of thing. And every time I saw him, he would be just laughing, and he was real tall, so he was, I could always see him laughing and joking around and everything. And, and he, he never did any work, but everybody loved him. And he was one of these people who would go around gossiping, and he knew everything was going on, and he was a deacon of his independent Baptist church. And I questioned his salvation because he had no work ethic. We've all dealt probably with situations like that. 
James Grant says this regarding whatever the motive is. The solution is the same no matter which the problem we're facing. Paul is providing a theology of work and vocation in this passage. He is helping us to think about the relationship between work, the benefits of the result from it, and its relationship to the peace of our community. Now, they didn't just have this doctrine, this, this, this emphasis where Paul taught while he was there, then he re-emphasized in the first letter, now he's re-emphasizing again in the sec- second letter. They also had his example of work. Go, if you go to verses 7 through 9, you see him kind of pointing back to his own example. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example. Now, you know, we want to be the kind of Christians to be able to humbly say, follow my example. Do what I do. Do what I say and do what I do. Puritan Thomas Brooks said, example is the most powerful of all rhetorics. It speaks louder than the words you say. Paul said that, kind of emphasized this again in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. For you recall, brethren, our labor and hardship, how working night and day so as not to be made a burden to any of you, we proclaim to you the gospel of God. Now, what did Paul do? Now, he worked teaching and preaching, but he also worked making tents, which I think would be classified as labor in a certain way, okay? Here is one of the giftedest scholars to ever live on the planet, and he is willing to sit down and sew hides together and sell them to a tent seller because he wanted to be an example. So the reason why he did that is he was dealing with a culture that had all these itinerant philosophers, itinerant teachers who would go around. And they would come into it, and they were, they were sophists. They were very smooth. They were very good at debate. And they would come in with all their shininess, and they would, they would kind of woo people with their, with their words. And then they would kind of move in, and they would expect the people to pay their, their way, their food, and give them lodging for free and everything just so they could hear their words. And he knew that a lot of those people were charlatans, and they were showmen, and he wanted to say, this is different. This is different because this is Christianity. This comes from God, not man. I'm willing to work day and night in hard labor in order to show you the difference. And he did. But even that example apparently was not enough. He goes on to say here that we were not a burden to any of you, even though we had this right to be. So in a sense, whereas these idle people don't have a right to do this, the apostle Paul had a right Part of his calling from God is he had a right to expect that the people that are being ministered to, that he was ministering to, would support him financially. He mentions this in 1 Timothy 5. The elders who rule well among you should be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. Galatians chapter 6, verse 6. The one who has taught the word is to share all good things with the one who teaches him. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Do you not know that those who perform sacred service eat the food of the temple and those who attend regularly to the altar have their share of the altar? So also the Lord directed those to proclaim the gospel to get their living from the gospel. It's amazing. There's whole denominations that have sprung up that say, we do not pay pastors and we're proud of it. There's seven people left in that denomination. I mean, it's very clear in Scripture that there should be, you know, for the well-being of the church to support the minister who, who brings the church. Now, this, you know, again, this is the Apostle Paul. This is not Alec Campbell telling you that. But he forgot that right. He said, for the sake of this church plant, so that you can see that I'm different from everybody else, I'm going to sow and I'm going to eat my own bread and I'm going to pay for my own lodgings. And that lesson seems to be lost on a lot of them. Talk about futility. Talk about frustration. So in order to offer himself as a model 
so that they could follow in his example. Now we see here the principal work in verses 10 through 13. For even when we were with you, we used to give this order. Paul evidently saw this when he came to Thessalonica. He saw this was going to be a problem. So he's reminding them, I even taught this in person. If anyone's not willing to work, then he is not willing to eat. Okay, This is the negative part of the principle of work. If you don't work, you don't eat. Now, y'all, that is not nuanced, is it? That is not a real complicated commandment, is it? If you don't work, you are not, you're not willing to work, you're not willing to eat. What is one qualifier? If you're not willing to work. It is not for those who cannot work. By the way, just in case that some of you are sensitive about this, work includes raising babies. Work includes being a student. Work includes all of those things that, that, are, that, are, that are helping and contributing and that kind of thing. This is not just those people who are getting a paycheck. Some of you who don't get a paycheck are working harder than anybody else uh, in this room. So it has to do with people who are not willing to work. So where did Paul get this command? I mean, this is, he's coming out. This is the Lord Jesus Christ commands this of you. Where did he get? From Genesis 3.19. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread. Okay? So we are to benefit through our work by eating of the, of, of the produce of our hands, of our work. Rick Phillips says this, Sloth was, uh, has forfeited a claim on the resources of other Christians. Furthermore, hunger will provide a motivation to work that is otherwise absent. He goes on, he, taught, he evidently had a report about this. We, we hear that someone is leading an, an undisciplined life, or some among you are leading an undisciplined life. This probably came from Timothy. And they're doing no work at all, but, contrary, acting like busybodies. Now, this, this, we kind of miss this. In the Greek, though, there's a play on words there, they, and it would not have been lost on the Thessalonians. He, he says, uh, he says they're, they're not working uh, ergazo menoi, but they are meddling, paragozano menoi. So there's a play on words there. Uh, they would have figured that out. They, they're, they're not busy, but they're being busy bodies. So they were busy disrupting the shalom of the church. They were busy uh, creating problems out there and, and, the, and, and opposed to the godly lifestyle that they should be walking in. Now, such persons we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ to work in a quiet fashion and eat their own bread. Now, here's the positive side of things. Okay, if you don't work, you don't eat. But if you work, you do eat. And that's a very positive affirmation of the principle of work. But as for you, brethren, do not grow weary of doing good. Well, that's a good reminder, isn't it? How many times have you quoted that verse? Isn't it, isn't it a principle? Sometimes you just think, am I the only one who cares? <laughs> do not grow weary in doing good. He says, same thing in Galatians, let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. There is a principle, work produces bread. Eventually, you will have payoff in this life, and if you don't in this life, you will certainly have it in the next. Can there be any greater words than this, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your master. That will be said of those who walk in a way that's worthy of the Lord. Colossians chapter 3 says, Whatever you do in word or deed and everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Everything we do, we should put our effort into. And, this is, and i got to tell you, too, this is a frustration uh, for those of us who work in Christian ministry. So one of the things you find in some different ministries is there's an attitude out there is this, is that because we are paid less than the market, and 
we are dealing with Christians and they have to forgive us, we have permission to be mediocre. And I, I, I inherited an office one time in a Christian ministry that was just badly run. Uh, I inherited it from a conflict avoider. And I had to go in there and I had to put a stop to a bunch of stuff. And within a couple of years, that office was completely turned around. But it cost that guy's sloth and attitude cost me a great deal of pain. But the attitude I kept finding everywhere was they're the Christian. They've got to accept mediocrity. They never said that. They never said, you know, hi, Bill Smith, mediocre. You know, <laughs> they just kind of played a game. But that's not the way they, they we should be better than everybody else at what we do. Wonderful example. The guy that led me to the Lord painted houses and uh, he painted houses with a, a painter. That was profound and deep. Uh, and there was one time they were working on a house and it was on the, a, a high two story arch of a garage. And when they were painting, they chipped a little window pane, a crack that big. And the guy went down the ladder, went over to get some, uh, some glass, glass pane and some caulking and all that kind of stuff. Went up there and the guy led him to the Lord said, why are you doing that? No one will see it. And the pain responded, God sees it. God sees it. I chipped it. I'm going to make it good. That's, that's excellence. That's a great example of the way we ought to be in what we do. So anyway, they need to work in a quiet fashion. They're to quit disrupting unity. They should take care of themselves as God has called them to do. So, and this is, this is a principle of Protestantism. In a sense, the work ethic that we're supposed to have was rediscovered. The, 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 the medieval, church, medieval church had gotten to where the highest thing you could ever achieve to be a nun or a monk. You would, you would sequester yourself. You would go off in isolation and you were, of course, doing religious duties. And we look down on everybody else who's not going to be a, a monk, nun or a monk. Martin Luther came in and said, that's all wrong. The baker has a calling from God. The bricklayer has a calling from God. The plumber has a calling from God. The attorney has a calling from God. And they, they did a lot to restore the work ethic, which quite frankly is one reason why our country has flourished when others have not. So you got kind of a, some applications here, and I've got 10 of them here. So right fast. Uh, so how do we apply that? Right, so first of all, everyone has a calling from God and everyone should work when possible. That seems obvious, but it's not so obvious. And by the way, there's more and more discouragements to work, aren't there? Ecclesiastes 2.24 says, There is nothing better for man than to eat and drink and tell himself that his labor is good. This also I have seen, it is from the hand of God. All right, number two, refusing to work is sin. Three, refusing to work disrupts the natural order of things and is bad. Number four, refusing to work creates a class of disruptive idol. Idle hands are the devil's workshop. How many times your mother or your grandmother say, idle hands are the devil's workshop? Get off that Xbox. Which actually, in some ways, is work. Uh, okay, it's not. Uh, the hardworking generally, do, you have, there's, well, also, I need to do, a, I need to do a, a sermon on recreation too, don't I? One day. The hardworking generally do not have time left to cause much trouble. Idleness is so much of a problem here. Because you, you're bored, so what do you do? You, but you don't want to work, so you go keep other people from working. Number five, refusing to work creates an inappropriate entitlement mentality which promotes more sin. 
You taxpayers can appreciate that truth, I think. I'm going to quote Rick Phillips in length here because I'll let him take the arrows instead of me because he's a big guy and a former combat officer, and, and he's in Greenville, and I'll give you the address if you want to shoot arrows. All right, Rick Phillips. Notice that while Phillips, uh, Paul's teaching might not explicitly endorse every aspect of modern capitalism, he certainly condemns the kind of socialism in which income is redistributed from those who earned it to those who did not. To be sure, there are many inequities in capitalist societies that should be addressed and many causes of people which, remain to sh uh, which means to show mercy uh, to, to the poor. But the Bible insists that property and wealth belong to those who earn it. Paul anticipates in his passage the many evils that will arise from an idle class that has grown used to entitlements that, uh, that are purported to come from the government, but in fact come from hardworking people whose property was confiscated by the government in order to give to others. Just as the idlers of the Thessalonica became busybodies, the welfare class in America has necessarily become a seed bread for bed for immorality, family dissolution, crime, and despair. Christian mercy will do many good things for the poor and will be happy to, uh, to uh, sacrifice in the legitimate ways to lift up the needy. But the socialist idea that people possess a right to the fruits of other people's work is alien to the Bible and condemned by Paul's teaching in the Thessalonians. The Thessalonians. I think I paid, we paid twenty-five dollars to $30,000 in taxes last year. I just saw, I was working out at the Purple Gym on my stair climber, and then Fox News was on, grateful for that. Our government gave, I think it was $1.3 billion in this new, this new budget, $1.3 billion to China and Russia. My $30,000 has just been completely absorbed with your tens of thousands of dollars and thousands of other people so that we can write checks to people who hate us and want to destroy us. That is evil. It's evil. It's theft. Now, this is not a political statement. It is a moral statement. That is theft. Number six. Not requiring work is bad charity. Remember, the enemy of good charity is bad charity. Proverbs 16 says, a worker's appetite works for him, for his hunger urges him on. Number seven, those who refuse to work should be disciplined, not rewarded. Michael Martin says this about the Thessalonian situation. By ostracizing such persons, the church has a body, as a body was able to express the disapproval in a manner that the offender could not dismiss lightly. Ultimately, the goal of the church was to see the errant one repent, return to Christ-like likeness, and return to the fellowship of believers. Uh, just another social statement. There is a group of people in our country who want to turn homeless people into heroes. Now, we recognize the fact some homeless people have legitimate needs. Since the, the first budget of our church, we've supported Haven of Rest. A number of our people are even on boards of Haven of Rest, Shalom Ministries, and some others. We believe in helping people to turn around. Uh, and, there are, and there are legitimate needs out there. But, but, but as a culture, we have lost perspective on this. 
And when, when someone knocks on that door and we get them to come in, and we, 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 we will not, if we can avoid it, we will not give them money. We give them information. We cannot assess whether they're going to buy, buy fentanyl with that money or booze with that money or pay apartment rent for that money. We can't assess. So we give our money to other people who can assess that. They will take the time to be able to do that. I'd give them money, but Sarah, boy, she'll run them off. I don't know. It, 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 you know what, though? We're conflict of order, so we'd rather just give money to get rid of them. And frankly, I've done that before, too. But that's, that is not helping the problem. Provide for yourself so that you can be generous towards others. Proverbs 37. The righteous is gracious and gives. All day long he is gracious and lends. Psalm 112. The man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in his commandments, has given freely to the poor. You know, it's interesting that so many of these uh, social liberals just criticize the church all the time. You ever seen how much they give? One percent. You know how much most Christians give? Somewhere between seven to ten percent. We're considerably more generous and we should be more generous. One reason why you can work is so you can share for, with others. And when possible, we should order our lives in such a way as not to be dependent on others. Now, look, folks, we all have times in our life we are dependent on others. I mean, when you're a child, you're dependent. There was a time in seminary, our family would have starved if we had not had the generosity of, of different people. Uh, some of us will fall on hard times. You know, we need to help each other out. We need to help each other out with money, with food. Uh, with a place to stay, maybe. Those are all legitimate things, but we all sh that, that should never be a goal. It had become the goal of people in Thessalonica. You know, who can I sponge off today when they were able to work? And the last one, often in this life, the certainty, uh, and with certainty in the end, you will be rewarded for your labor. God sees every, every cracked window pane you're willing to replace, God sees, and he will reward you. God, Jesus said, if you give a cup of cold water to someone, you will have a reward in heaven. How simple is giving a cup of cold water? It doesn't even cost you anything. But if you recognize someone's thirsty and I'm going to give them a cup of Jesus, God, will reward you when you get to heaven. So think about all the other things. Think about the tide checks they all just wrote. Think about the hospitality that you show, the love that you do. Think about the labors that you do for your children and your grandchildren, for all those that are out there that are benefiting from your hard work. God will reward you. So the solution to the problem is enforcement church discipline is aimed to bring in about this idea of repentance. So you see here the penitent necessary, penitence necessary for those who will uh, not work in verses 6 and then 14 through, through B. You are to keep away from every brother who leads an unruly life. If anyone does not obey our instruction, take special note of that person and do not associate with them. So you're supposed to identify who are the sinners in this particular situation here. And basically, the pressure of isolation is to shame them to repentance. Now, that upsets us a little bit. And it upsets us because we've lost that perspective. But there ought to be, there's a dignity to work and there is an undignity to sloth. And that needs to be pointed out because it's hurting the rest of the church. Is basically what, what Paul is saying right here. They're going to be shamed to repentance. Now, again, what's the point of church discipline? It's never punishment. It's never punitive. It's never vengeful. It is to get them to repent. And just think about it. All right, here you got these people that are sponging off of you. If you treat them just like everybody else, they're never good. Why would they ever repent? They got it made. Why would a, a generational welfare recipient ever get off of it as long as he keeps being affirmed? 
But you stop that, you've you've shielded the rest of the community from them, you isolate them, and maybe they'll think, you know, maybe I I need to go back to work. (laughs) Maybe, Maybe I need to quit waiting for Jesus to come back and just fix everything. Maybe we ought to do something about this. This is a form of, of church discipline. But you can take it too far. And Paul is so soft in so many ways. He's so tender, so gracious. So, so you put him to shame, yet you do not regard him as an enemy. Isn't that interesting how he adds that? Watch your attitude. Watch your pride. Watch your self-righteousness. Watch looking down on the homeless guy. Watch your arrogance. By God's grace, you're not in that situation. If you, did, if you grew up the way that guy did, you might be in that situation. So he says, don't regard him as an enemy. There's a great example in, in the, the Corinthian church. Remember the guy that was sleeping with his stepmom? And Paul says, you need to discipline this guy. Well, in their zeal, they evidently went too far in disciplining this guy. And Paul says in 2 Corinthians, sufficient for such a one is this punishment, which was inflicted by the majority, so that on the contrary, you should rather forgive and comfort him. Otherwise, such a one might be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. Wherefore, I urge you to affirm your love for him. So this guy, you, you, you shun, you isolate and shun these, these, these people. And then when they say, wow, I get it now, I'm going back to work. It's over with, right? You welcome them back into the fellowship. You know, the interesting thing is, remember, remember the, the, the way these things work. Paul writes a letter. He sends it to a courier to the Thessalonian church. They're gathered together on Sunday. The pastor stands up and says, we got a letter from Paul. Now, who's in that congregation? The workers and the disruptive idol. They're all in there together. So they're reading this letter, and they say, we want you to identify and shun this. And you can kind of see the eyes. Right? All of a sudden, I'm real motivated to go get a job tomorrow morning, right? It works. Because the church is supposed to have shalom. That groaning for sheshuk. Is, is fulfilled to a certain degree in a small way in this life through a properly functioned, well-ordered, sweet, loving, cooperative community. And work is one of the best ways we do that. It, it's been claimed, it's, it's been disputed, but it's been claimed that someone asked Martin Luther, what would he do if he knew Jesus was going to come back tomorrow? And Martin Luther's response was, if I knew Jesus was coming back tomorrow, I would plant my apple tree today. Why? (laughs) Does that make any sense? Trees take generations to grow up and produce. His point was, because I am called to work, and I'm going to work right up until the point he comes. Because he saw the value of it. He saw that that was part of what God wants him to do. He doesn't want him to be an idler. One commentator kind of summarizes this. Our redemption is not simply a ticket to eternal bliss. Our redemption is for the whole world because our redemption is supposed to give the world a picture of the way things are supposed to be. So Paul concludes by reminding us that the Lord will provide peace through these difficult trials. And ultimately, he will establish peace not only within our community, but across the whole world. That is good news indeed. Isn't it something with... Adam and Eve, we're all children of Adam and Eve, how they created the whole world, they created the fall. Eden died in a sense, or at least we were barred from it. Thorns and thistles came up. 
But when we are walking in the way that God would have us walk, we're cutting the thorns, we're cutting the thistles, we're planting flowers, and we're letting people see how beautiful the world can be so that they can have, desire the Eden that is to come. That's a great calling. Work and enjoy your work. Father, we do turn to you in faith and pray that you'd apply these truths to our lives. Uh, we're just grateful for our callings. And we pray, God, that you would help us to be faithful to follow those. If we are miserable in, in what we do, I pray that you would open the door for a better calling, greater purpose. Sometimes it takes us a while to figure these things out. I pray for those who are preparing for a career, that they would be faithful to do so. And that you would just uh, bless us with a purpose, knowing that you see all and you will reward all. For the sake of the peace and the prosperity of your church, let us work hard in faith. In Christ's name, amen.